Matthew 5. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up there. We've called this series Matters of the Heart. If you're new, uh, you know, in the last month or so, first of all, if you are new in the last month or so, I'll reiterate the invitation to my house after church next week. But also, you know, you may have grabbed the bulletin and thought, man, what is this weird art on the front of the bulletin here? This heart, you know, floating over above an ocean with these huge icebergs. And what we're trying to emphasize is that Jesus' teaching here is taking something that is a broad kind of foundational principle from the Old Testament, the law that was oftentimes manipulated in ways to say, okay, murder, well, I mean, I've never done that. But Jesus brings it down to the heart level and says, well, let's now talk about your anger. Let's talk about the words you use to talk to others. And in doing so, he's taking what looks to be kind of just the tip of the iceberg above the water and really exposing what's underneath the matters really of the heart. We are now in Uh, Chapter 5, verse 33 is where we are, where Jesus is going to talk more about the particular way that we use our words, most especially in an honest way. So listen now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Just let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and we do proclaim that it is true. As we come to your word, we come giving the scissors to you, giving the scalpel to you, asking you to cut out anything that is unclean in us, that we might come before your word and see it as a mirror, showing us our need for your grace, and that we also might see it as a a guide, a light for our path, that you might conform us more and more to what it means to be truly human. Thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for the beauty, the honesty, the truth of your scriptures. We ask that you would open our eyes to them today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I used to work uh, in the marketing field, advertising specifically. And one of my jobs was I worked for uh, kind of a a medium-sized high-tech company in Austin. And we were big enough that we had an in-house marketing department and really an in-house advertising department. I did a lot of the copywriting, and we had a full-time designer on staff. And it just so happened that, like most big companies, we had had a a party of some sorts. I can't remember if it was a Christmas party or it was some sort of just kind of rah-rah time to make everybody feel really good, give them a lot of food and drink, and go out there and sell more stuff and make us a lot of money. And it was fun, and, you know, like most corporate parties, there was somebody there taking pictures the whole time. So all of these kind of party poses happening, and everybody's in different pictures. And the designer, my friend, was the one who would receive all the pictures so that he could sort through them, he could make them look better. And then he could put them, you know, up on the website or send them out to everybody. Well, the day before he was going to send them out to everybody, he, he called me into his office. He said, hey, hey, Derek, come in. Look, look at these pictures. I've got some, um, some really great ones, and there's some really good pictures of you. And he, he pulled up a couple of pictures, and he, he showed me this picture, and it's got a few people, and there I am in it. And, um, I mean, I just looked kind of weird. And I was like, huh, I look weird in that picture. I don't know what it is. And he would say, 
oh man, you look great. It's fine. Check out, check out this one. And he'd flip it to a different picture, and there'd be a group of people and me in there. And um, like my forehead looked too big. And I was like, this looks weird, man. I mean, like, I don't, something's wrong with me in this picture. He's like, I don't see it. I mean, it looks just fine to me. You know, well, check out this picture. And he'd flip it, and it was like, my chin was too long. And he had been in Photoshop, just like slightly manipulating every picture of me to make my cheeks kind of bigger or another one my chin was long or like I had this cone head and it was just slight enough that I was like, man, something looks weird here and I don't know what it is. And he was like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. It looks great. He was just kind of subtly manipulating the truth, right? Have you ever had that happen to you? Maybe you've had it happen in a, um, in a more hurtful way. That happens with somebody's words or actions where they have just kind of slightly manipulated or twisted the truth so that they're there presenting maybe either themselves in a better light or presenting you in a more negative light. The truth is, like, that's the human heart. The human heart has the tendency to manipulate the truth. To want to position ourselves in a better light, to want to position others in a worse light. To want to kind of just change things just a little bit so that we make ourselves look better and so that we can protect ourselves in some way and, I don't know, feed any of the insecurities that we have. Well, we've been looking at this passage, this whole chapter in a series of Scripture where Jesus is taking Old Testament principles. He's taking oftentimes explicit Old Testament laws. And particularly Old Testament laws, the, the, the teachers of the law in that day, the Pharisees, had begun to manipulate. They had begun to just change a little bit. In fact, oftentimes they had introduced a, an oral tradition that was much more stringent, that was much more detailed, much more particular than the written law. And they had called everybody to start to look at these kind of details and these descriptions in the law, and they had just slightly manipulated what God had proclaimed. And most of these, again, most of these things that Jesus says have Old Testament kind of background foundations to them. The background foundation to what Jesus is talking about here deals with oaths. And there's no one scripture that Jesus kind of pulls out here, but it seems like he's alluding to a couple of them. There's a passage in Leviticus 19 where God says, you're not to to swear falsely with my name. Right? If you make an oath in my name, you can't break it. Because then you're breaking actually the Lord's name. You're damaging the Lord's name in doing so. And of course, there's, there's two of the Ten Commandments that deal with this. We have, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Meaning, don't bring in the Lord's name to invoke something in an inappropriate or flippant kind of way. And then, of course, don't bear false witness. Don't bear false witness in court or in any other way against your neighbor. And God's law, with this combination of things, is really doing for our speech what we saw last week Him do for marriage. Remember, uh, what we talked about last week is that God's law in the Old Testament was really proclaimed into a culture where marriage, you know, there was a very low view of marriage and a very low view of women in general. And so, and so men particularly were just kind of coming in and out of marriage just kind of at will. And they could just dismiss their wives whenever they wanted. And God begins to put a hedge around marriage and elevate it much higher than the culture elevated it. Well, he's doing the same thing here actually with our speech, with our truthfulness. He is speaking into a culture where oftentimes what you said like didn't really matter. It didn't really matter what you said. You weren't really bound to your word. And God is starting to put a hedge around this with all of these laws in the Old Testament. And in doing so, he's actually creating um, a society that works. 
Because if you can't believe what I say, then, then communication is really pretty fruitless. Then relationship is pretty fruitless. And society just kind of breaks down. If you can't believe what somebody else says and what they say is not what they're going to do, then there's really very little basis for a functioning society. And so God's law in the Old Testament begins to put these hedges, these walls, these limits around how we talk. And throughout the Old Testament, what you see is, is oaths. You see people taking oaths. And an oath really just was um, marrying together what I say to something greater. To something greater that makes what I say feel more important, makes it more believable, gives it more weight. Right, so taking an oath in God's name or taking an oath you know, in the name of or in association with something that you would hold very important made it more weighty. And it made the person that you were talking to understand, okay, this person is a lot less likely to break their word because they've kind of invoked this oath here. Again, it gave boundaries and structures to a world where really what you said didn't matter much. But in the New Testament, in the time that Jesus is talking, what I'd said before was oftentimes the teachers of the law had begun to start to to kind of manipulate things, change things a little bit. And they had taken what God had meant to actually elevate what we say and started to manipulate it in a very strange way. In fact, um, Jesus in Matthew 23, a little further in Matthew's gospel, he has some really harsh things to say for the Pharisees. He, start, he, he unloads on them pretty good. And one of the things he unloads on them is this idea of oaths. He says that, listen, this is what you've done, is that you've, you've made some things okay and some things not okay. You've said anybody who swears on the temple, well, that's really not that big a deal. You could break that oath. But, but if you swear on the gold that's in the temple, now that's a binding oath. If you swear on the altar in the temple, eh, you know, it's not that big a deal. But if you swear on the gift that's on the altar that's in the temple, then you have to obey that oath. And they literally had come up with all of these requirements and rules about which oaths were binding and which were not. And what you see Jesus actually working through here in this chapter is that they had also said, okay, well, you know, perjury's bad. Right? We don't want you to lie, and we certainly don't want you to break, you know, to take God's name in vain. That would be breaking one of the commandments. So probably don't swear on God's name because, you know, I mean, if you break it, then you might be guilty of perjury. That's real sin. So just swear, like, by heaven, or swear by earth, or swear by your own head, or something like that. That way, you know, you're not quite in as much danger. I mean, these are nothing more than just good old-fashioned loopholes, right? Loopholes. Ways of just kind of finding your own way to work things to, to match what you want them to be. We introduced this concept a few weeks ago of, um, of the, the floor and the ceiling when we talk about God's law. And we talked about the law being the floor. That's the basis, the base part, which with, if, if you go under, things start to really break down. Right? So don't murder the people around you. That's kind of the floor there, where if everybody believes that they can take anyone else's life, then a society completely breaks down. But God's word never calls us to live on the floor. It actually calls us to something higher, to the ceiling. And the ceiling with that is love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Actually lay down your life for your neighbor. 
Jesus talks then about anger, and what he's doing actually in a lot of this is taking that floor and dropping it out from under us, right? He's taking what we think is the floor, and he's expanding it, he's lowering it in such a way that we realize, man, uh, there's so much in my heart that I, I can't, that, that, that's wrong that I can't even obey that thing that I thought was the very bottom, was the floor. But there's also a ceiling, right? When Jesus says, let's talk about murder is not just killing your neighbor, but it's actually what's in your heart. It's the anger that's in your heart. It's the words that you use that come out of your mouth that are hateful and hurtful. Like, those are murderous as well. Well, we still don't want to just hang out on the floor. We want to actually move to the ceiling. Because the ceiling in that case would be, well, we'll use words that are actually built up, that, that love people. Well, what the uh, Pharisees had done, though, was instead, uh, they're doing just the opposite, really, of what Jesus is doing. Uh, Jesus is kind of lowering, lowering the floor. He's dropping the bottom out. What they were doing, really, was raising it to meet whatever their practice was. They're saying, okay, well, here's the requirement. Here's God's law. But you know what? It's not really matching our practice very well. So we'll change the requirement to meet our practice. We'll find some loopholes in ways that kind of move the floor so that it matches what we're doing. Now, Christians have for, for quite some time called this legalism. This is the, the word that we've given to this is legalism. And legalism really is just the idea that I'm accepted by God based on my ability to obey the rules. Based on my ability to kind of fulfill the requirements, that's when God accepts me. And so I feel good and secure and accepted by God if I feel like I've obeyed all of the rules. Well, if you've ever tried to do that, what you see is that there's usually only two routes after that. There's either, I realize that I can't do that, so I'm out. I hate God. Why would I ever want to love a God who puts these kind of requirements on me that I could never fulfill? Or you do what the Pharisees were doing, which is you just subtly start to change the requirements to match your practice. And so now I feel good about myself and accepted by God because, hey, my practice matches the requirements and that's what makes me feel like I'm in. That's legalism. That's what these Pharisees were doing. You know, oftentimes the church has been guilty of this over the century and and still is in so many ways. Again, pulling kind of from the illustration of marriage that we talked about last week. Uh, the church, the Christian church, our church throughout the history uh, of the church has developed loopholes to say, well, listen, we realize that divorce is something that God frowns upon. So you can't get a divorce. But what we can do is this really interesting thing we call an annulment. Where we just say, your marriage never really happened. It wasn't really, it, it, it never really happened right in the first place so we can kind of wipe it away. It's a real famous annulment, right? And Henry VIII and whatever he wanted to do with his wives, he figured out a way to get the church to do it for him. But that's just finding loopholes. That's just moving the floor uh, of God's requirement to match our practice. When I, I was in high school in my early days of college, this, I mean, almost 100% marked my understanding of my Christian faith. I got to college and I thought, okay, I've known that God loves me for some reason, and I know that he wants me to be pretty good. He's got some requirements for me. That was my, real, that was my Christian worldview. And what that meant for me, though, was there's about three things that God requires of me that make me, get me in good standing with God, that make me accepted by God. He wants me to go to church. He wants me, uh, you know, not to party. And he wants me not to have sex. And those were the things that he cared about. 
which meant that anything else, kind of, he didn't care about at all. Jesus didn't care about uh, me going to class in college, which is why I never went to class. Jesus didn't care about my relationships in college and just kind of what they looked like, which is why they were terrible. Jesus didn't you know, really care about my thought life. He didn't really care about my intellectual life. He didn't care about my work ethic. So all of that was just like, that's all stuff that you know, the Lord doesn't care about. He just cares about these three things. Well, not only, of course, was I totally wrong about all that, but like any good legalist, I couldn't even handle those three things. So I started to just manipulate them a little bit, right? Yeah, God wants me to go to church. I mean, you know, unless I was out late on Saturday night, you know, um, or unless, you know, I have to make a trip, you know, to see my friends in a different city. And, um, you know, so then, like, of course, there's lots of unlesses, you know, he may want me to do that. But, you know, if I can kind of manipulate things the way that I want them to be, then I'm still okay. Of course, God doesn't want me, you know, he cares about my sexuality, but really in the way that I define it, really in the way that that I get to kind of lay out. That's the way that he cares about it. And so I would move the floor. I would move the requirement to match my practice to make me feel like God accepted me. Well, when I understood the gospel really for the first time, what I understood is that um, that is just not the way that Christianity works. Because first of all, I realized, man, I just had three things. Honestly, like three things. I couldn't even do three things. I couldn't even get those right. And I realized what an utter failure I was. And then wonderfully got to actually see that God does not call us to that because we don't have to do that. Because Jesus has done something for us that we can't do. Jesus has actually met the requirements of the law. Jesus has lived perfectly. And Jesus, through our faith in him, gives us his righteousness and takes our sin. What a, what a beautiful trade. The worst trade in history and the greatest trade in history for us. We get his perfect record of righteousness. He gets our imperfect record of wrongs. And he forgives us and loves us and calls us his children. Friends, that is, that is the gospel. That is the good news of Christianity. That is why we are here celebrating. That is the honest truth about who we are. So what's the ceiling then? If we've kind of dropped out the floor and we've said, listen, the, the floor here is not you just kind of moving it to, to match God's requirements to your practice. But it's actually that God calls us to honesty in all ways. That he calls us to be truthful. That he calls us, that, uh, that, that what he says is that, that what we say matters. No matter how we say it. No matter if we've got an oath attached to it. No matter if we're sworn in under oath or not. That actually what we say matters. Our honesty and truthfulness matters. That's, that's the floor. So what's the ceiling? Well, the ceiling, I think, as I was thinking about and studying this passage this week, I really was wondering about this. Like, what, what really are we being called to here? And I think the answer is, the ceiling here is Vulnerability. Is that what we're actually being called to is not just to speak honestly, that's certainly one of those things, but to live a life that is vulnerable, honest, transparent. To live a life actually of truthfulness. I want you to think just for a second about the, uh, the people in your life who you've known over the course of time to be dishonest in one way or another. My guess is, is almost every one of those people is also a very insecure person. It is that vulnerability that is frightening to us. And so we begin to manipulate the truth in order to cover our vulnerability, in order to make ourselves feel more protected, in order to make ourselves feel more safe, because we don't like feeling vulnerable. 
I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, the movie Catch Me If You Can. It's a movie about, uh, it's a true story about a man named Frank Abagnale, who is uh, one of the FBI's, at the time he was the most, may still be um, the most notorious kind of uh, bank fraud criminal in FBI history. And this is, this is a man from, a, man is a, uh, is a stretch, he was 15 years old actually when he started these things. He just started a life really of slight manipulation. Uh, you know, starting to kind of trick his parents about things and then starting to trick others. And he would write hot checks, you know, that, that he had no money in his account uh, to be able to fulfill. And he had just wonderful charm. And so he would convince people of all of these things. He, uh, he impersonated an airline pilot for, I think, three years and racked up, I think, a million miles of airline travel sitting in the jump seat of the cockpit wearing uh, a uniform of, an, of a Pan Am airline pilot. He visited 26 countries that way. And because of the Pan Am name that was just so respected at the time, he would just write these amazing hot checks all over the country and he'd drive these beautiful cars. He impersonated a doctor and he was the chief resident of a hospital for eight months overseeing medical students. He never did anything. He let them do it all. But everybody for nearly a year thought that he had went to Harvard Medical School and he was the chief resident of this doctor, I mean, of this, of this hospital. Uh, he passed the Louisiana bar without ever going to, to law school, impersonated himself as, as a lawyer and worked for the, for the district attorney uh, in, in New Orleans for nearly a year. It's an amazing story. If you haven't seen the movie, it really is a good movie. But there's this very, very poignant part in the movie where it's Christmas Eve. And, and the FBI agent that's been tracking him this whole time is just determined to get him. He's sitting at his phone. He's sitting he's in his office. He's working. And he gets this call. It's from Frank Abagnale. And he's like 17 at the time. And he calls him, and he's kind of just this witty banter going back and forth. And, and the FBI agent uh, finally realizes, he says, Frank, why did you call me? It's Christmas Eve. And he finally realizes, you know, you called because you don't have anybody else to call, do you? You don't have anywhere else to go, do you? You're lonely. You're scared. You're insecure. And it's this boy who, born out of his insecurity, had looked for falsehood to cover that. Of self-protection. To project himself as something that he wasn't. I saw another movie the other day that actually um, probably hit even closer to home for some of us. Uh, the movie Jumanji, which really is a funny movie. Uh, it introduces one of the characters in a really funny way. It's this, this high school girl who's kind of just this prototype blonde high school girl. And w- what we see her in the morning, she's kind of just woken up. But she's, she's on a couch and... Um, and it looks like she's just woken up, but you start to realize she's starting to place everything where it needs to be. Like the, the blanket that was on her is just, it's folded just so, where it's a little bit disheveled, but not too much. And, and there's a glass of water on this table that's beside her, and she kind of slightly moves it because it's not quite at the right angle. And um, she lays back kind of on the pillow and tosses her hair back in the right way and, and you know, kind of puts on this, this kind of sexy little smile and clicks this picture and puts it on social media with a caption that says, you know, just woke up. Look at me, so, you know, just woke up, did nothing. You know, she spent 30 minutes actually preparing that picture. Have you ever felt kind of like that, either in this projection of who you are to the world? So social media makes it really easy for us to do that. Or a projection to God of who you are and what you have accomplished. Or a projection to the church or your Christian friends of, look at what a strong Christian I am. Friends, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus has actually come for vulnerable people. For people who need to be able to engage that with their whole hearts. 
The author Brene Brown says that um, our capacity for wholeheartedness uh, is direct, directly correlates to our capacity for brokenheartedness. What she means is that to be wholehearted, that's her way of talking about flourishing humanity. For us to be whole people, we actually have to be able to be vulnerable as broken people. And if you are a Christian, <laughs> the truth is Jesus has done something for you that is amazing. He has protected you. He actually makes you whole. He takes you in your vulnerability and he says, let, let me protect you. Let me be your covering. Let me be your protection. Let me be the one who stands here and takes the bullets. Let me be the one who takes the arrows. Jesus, the one who called himself the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, also was the one who was the most vulnerable, who came, as Paul said, to take on our flesh, to make himself one of us, to humble himself as a servant, and to do so even in dying on the cross. And it's that death that actually gives us the protection, the ability to be vulnerable with God and with one another. Jesus is calling us, yes, to truthfulness, to honesty, to plainness, to do so no matter whether we're under oath or not. But he's calling us to do that in ways even that will make you feel vulnerable. Places where we get, we're going to have to put ourselves out there, where we're going to feel insecure. And friends, we can do that. Because Jesus has made us secure. Because Jesus has protected us. Because Jesus has done something in giving us a foundation that we could never get on our own. That's why we can be honest. Let's pray that the Lord would make us that kind of people now. Our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for uh, what you've done in securing us. Lord, for what you've done in, in making us yours for covering us. Lord, you have protected us. You have made us secure. And so now, Lord, we ask that you would make us truthful, that you would make us honest, that you would make us those who, who really can move into the world in ways that we proclaim ourselves to be who we are. We proclaim others to be who they are. We do so honestly without self-protection. But, Lord, we can't do that unless we cling to your protection. So will you give us that today? We ask that this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to have a time of, of reflection now.